if I wake up in the morning and the phone doesn't ring from the press, uh, I can have, I can get some work done. And then what, what's that work? What's your field? Oh, no. So I would be writing books. I would be uh, continuing to analyze data. That's my fourth time. Using yeah, the word. we're getting. Don't worry. We're counting. Uh, by the way, we've been into big data from the beginning, long before anyone even knew the term big data. We have the universe we're measuring here. So that, in principle, is the biggest data set of them all. It's What's the Point from 538. My name is Jody Avergan. You recognize that voice. Neil deGrasse Tyson visited our studios to talk about astronomy, his books and TV shows, and the 425-mile time he ran in high school. That interview is coming up, but first, as always, a number that caught our eye this week, the significant digit. Excuse me, can I tell you a number? What kind of number? Uh, well, the number is 21. 21 years old is the age you now have to be to buy cigarettes in Hawaii. They raised their age from 18 to 21. I will put them... 25 to buy the cigarettes. He's too young from 18 to buy a cigarette. He didn't know. He just wanted to show off like his friends smoking, this and that. But when he's 25, he, he's got nothing different. 21, 25, why not 27 or 30 or maybe never at all? Anna Barry Jester writes about public health for 538. So why 21? Why not 25? You know, it's a really good question. Um, the Institute of Medicine this year actually put out a report looking at what would happen if we changed the age to 21 or 25. 25 doesn't seem to have as much of an, an effect as if you raise it from 18 to 21. Raising it from 21 to 25 doesn't seem to improve it as much. But how early, how young people start smoking really affects if they become um, lifelong smokers. And it's funny because that man we spoke spoke to Fred Dukai, he pointed out that it was a sort of social thing and he thought it was cool college age kids who were going to pick it up. But it really is that high school age where you lock in your smoking habits. That's what the research shows. Yeah, the research shows that people who are adult regular smokers, 90% of them start before they're 19 and almost 100% start before they're 26. So high school and college are both important places. But high school seems to that 15 to 17 age group is like is the real sweet spot when people if they start smoking, it can be really hard to quit. And I noticed that the Hawaii law also bans e-cigarettes. Why would that be? You know, it's so the e-cigarettes thing is so interesting. I think people don't really know how to feel about them. There's a lot of people who think, look, it's still smoking. It's still promoting smoking. It's just another way. We're not really clear on the science behind whether or not, you know, how bad they are for you. They're not as bad as, um, you know, as traditional right. cigarettes. And I, and I imagine there's an argument to be made that we should be encouraging e-cigarettes for people 18 to 21 if they're choosing between a real cigarette and an e-cigarette. Exactly. I mean, if you were going to encourage between one of them, definitely e-cigarettes seem to be better for you. But, you know, th the reality is smoking really is a, a leading cause of so many diseases in this country. So it's, you know, it can't be taken for granted that smoking is a huge public health concern. What is the argument against raising the limit like this? Well, you know, I can come up with a few public health arguments, which are that there are other measures that may be more influential in, in smoking. Like, for example, in, in the research that New York City's done, the one group that they could not figure out how to get to stop smoking or to smoke less is white teenage girls. And actually raising the price, there, there's some suggestion that that made it seem even more glamorous and more like a high class thing to do. And so in some ways it made young women smoke even more. 
you know, raising the age to 21 it has this sort of general public health attitude, you know, of of getting younger people not to smoke. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it works. Really interesting. Anna Barry Jester, thanks for doing this. Yeah, thanks for having me. Neil deGrasse Tyson is here. Our studio is right around the corner from the American Museum of Natural History, ostensibly his home base, though it seems like he's everywhere else all of the time. So let's talk to Dr. Tyson about his work with the public and his new TV show, Star Talk, plus the state of astronomy and how data is changing that field. By the way, Star Talk, which was first a podcast, is now a TV show that airs at 11 p.m. on Mondays on the National Geographic Channel. Neil deGrasse Tyson, welcome to 538. Thanks. My first time on 538. So this show went from podcast to television. This is a podcast. Are you telling me there's a chance? (laughs) Well, we were a radio show, then a podcast, both, and then a jump species just this spring. So we're quite uh, happy about that. Uh, Well, it's not so much happy. It's I am enchanted by the appetite that the public seems to have for science. It's an appetite that I think was previously untapped, untouched, undreamt of. And you look at the success of Cosmos airing in primetime on Fox, a major network. Who would have thought that such a show would have any presence at all under those circumstances? But it did, and it did very well. And it was also distributed around the world on the National Geographic Channel, 180 countries. So all of these combined... I think is evidence that the public is ready for an evening talk show. It's still it's still the radio show, right. but it's, but now we're, I have to be better groomed <laughs> when we when we film it. But I'm surprised you used that word unprecedented. I mean, Cosmo was a reboot. I mean, the, the, you really feel that this is a time in which there's more general public interest the original in Cosmos, science than ever before. The original Cosmos aired on PBS. So the issue here is not that Cosmos exists in right. a new incarnation, but that Cosmos aired on a major network in primetime on a Sunday night. You don't have network executives making those kinds of decisions unless they really have some confidence that there's an appetite out there that wasn't previously served. So this show, Star Talk uh, on National Geographic now, the premise is you talk to, quote-unquote, real people. I mean, they're celebrities, comedians. I I talk to people who generally have nothing whatsoever to do with science. So why talk to them instead of other astrophysicists. Oh, because the show is not driven by science topics. It's driven by the life of the person being interviewed. And that person is from pop culture. You would have heard of most of them, I think. Jimmy Carter, Christopher Nolan, yeah, yeah. Ariana Huffington. <laughs> You've I've, heard of... heard, I've heard of two of those three, <laughs> okay. but I won't tell you which one I haven't heard of. No. Uh, yes, there are some really great guests. George Takei. Right. right. So, so these are people who in my conversation with them, I, I tease out of the flow of banter how science may have impacted their lives, either negatively or uh, positively or negatively. So it's, it's an exploration of the ubiquity of science in our lives. And if you see science manifesting in the storytelling of your celebrity favorite person, then perhaps you'll think of science differently next time not as an edifice that you will not enter or that you will navigate around because you're into something else, not science. 
that's the sciences for other people. No, you'll learn that science is everywhere and it's for everyone. And I found no more potent way to convey this than to get your pop culture idols in a conversation with me about science at all. And often you find people where they had an inner geek that right. in their professional circles never had an occasion to surface. When I interviewed President Carter, I didn't ask him about the Middle East. That's what other people do. I want to know, tell me about your engineering background. And this is where I learned that he taught astronomy to, to was it Navy midshipmen? When he was in the Navy, he was teaching celestial navigation. And that's kind of interesting to know. And that generally doesn't come out in an interview with a former president. And I think you are right that never has this sort of inner geek been celebrated more or than Or served right or even recognized as existing at all. Do regular people need to have uh, a sort of working knowledge of science and technology and engineering and astronomy, sort of you know formal schooling in it in order to connect to that inner geek? Or is there another way for them to have that be a part of their lives? I think the inner geek... See... Don't confuse science literacy with possessing, possessing a body of knowledge. Science literacy, I mean, it's an aspect of it, of course, but science literacy is, is more how is your brain wired for thought? Are you wired for curiosity? Are you wired for doubt in search of evidence, in search of data to arrive at a conclusion rather than start your day with a pre-existing conclusion and then cherry-picking data to fit it. And so the more examples that I can put on the table by how science moves through our culture, I think the more comfortable people will feel about it and not walk away guilty that maybe they didn't do well in their science class or they didn't take enough science. I can tell you that curiosity matters more than your body of knowledge. We do hear a lot, though, about other countries beating us in STEM education. Do you buy into that? Well, that's what the data show. Right. It's a data, isn't it? It's a data oriented. Yes. No, you've said data <laughs> twice. If, we, if you get to five, we five, give you a, the, the, a gift bag the, the on the way I exactly. come out of the ceiling. That's what you're trying to get <laughs> right. me to do. I didn't know that. No, but how much, how much do you think – I mean, there, I, I, I will betray what I think, which is I think you know there's a little bit of an element of xenophobia in that sort of, oh my gosh, China's killing us on STEM over and over and over here and like other countries are eating our lunch when it comes to that kind of education. Yeah, the top one-fourth of people in China in any category pick IQ or, or whatever. It doesn't matter. The top one-fourth in China outnumber the entire population of the United States. So you just want a reality check there. There you have it. And so, yeah, we're fading. We're fading fast. It's real. And there's a policy response, not just a public awareness response? Policy. You mean... Education. Like, like you mean heads of government yeah. making informed policy decisions? <laughs> is this what you're asking me? That is what I'm asking you. <laughs> I don't see it following. So I'm a little worried about the future of the country. When you have people saying, don't use the phrase global warming, uh, what, that's, that's not an informed democracy. I don't know what that is. Um, let's talk a little bit about the work you do and, and how data plays into mm -hmm. it. Do you still do active research? I try to. It's very hard because so many – I'm tugged at from so many directions and, and, and willingly. I mean it's not like – I'm not blaming anybody for it. It just is. And uh, I try to. So 
right now, if it's a half a day a week, that's a good day for me. Uh, ideally, I'd bring it back up to maybe two days or three days a week, but that's not in the near future, but perhaps the mid-future. And then I would recede a bit from the public eye. I don't, I'm in the public eye not because I seek it out. It may seem otherwise, but that's, that's not the case. Uh, if I wake up in the morning and the phone doesn't ring from the press, uh, I, can have, I can get some work done. And then what, what's that work? What's your field? Oh, no. So I would be writing books. I would be uh, continuing to analyze data. That's my fourth time using yeah, the word. Yeah, we're getting – don't worry. We're counting. Um, I'm part of a, an international collaboration which looks at data from the Hubble telescope mm-hmm. that has accurately recorded large-scale structure of the universe out to very distant galaxies. Uh, so that's a, that's that's been a fertile collaboration. But what does that mean? You roll up your sleeves and you're diving into an Excel spreadsheet or imaging? Yeah, it's data. You're looking at data. And data are obtained by the Hubble telescope. So the Hubble telescope takes images. And then you want to know what do these objects look like? How bright are they? What is their color spectrum? You know, Are they moving? Are they nearby? Are they far away? Once you gather this information, you pose questions that you can then answer from those data. I read a piece in The Atlantic a couple years ago that said the amount of data astronomers can now collect is doubling in size every year. Is that really I don't know if it's true? every year, but it's I, I'd say every every three years. Maybe. And why is that? I mean, it might be every year. I didn't study the problem, right. but based on my casual awareness being in the field, I would say it doubles every few years. And what's leading to that? Uh, the speed of computers, the size of chips mm-hmm. that are getting the data. And the rate at which we can process the data once it's obtained. When, if any one of those is a laggard, then it holds up the whole operation. But once you get all three of those humming along, uh, by the way, we've been into big data from the beginning, long before anyone even knew the term big data. We have the universe we're measuring <laughs> here. So that, in principle, is the biggest data set of them all. At the museum, we have a, at the American Museum of Natural History, that's my day job. Uh, someone who, uh, on my staff is manager of the digital universe. That's their I, title? That's on their card? I, that is on his card. Wow. And I thought that's the coolest. That's the best. You bring that, whip that out at the bar. You know? <laughs> hey, baby. I, you know, right. So manager of the digital universe. And we gather data from around the world from telescopes. And we make them coherent with one another. Because different data sets at different times don't always blend together into a coherent image or what can be ha- compared in a meaningful way. So you, um, that, that's an effort to put them on the same footing. Now when we write space shows and want to take you through the galaxy or out to the edge of the universe, we use real data for that. It's not an artist. The Hayden Planetarium used to have a whole artist's, uh, I don't call it artist colony, but it was, it's an artist's studio where pictures were drawn and painted and, and collaged and then photograph for a space show. Now it's all on the computer. And uh, we're using real data at that. You mentioned the Hubble. There's a, the, the next generation telescope is the James Webb. Is mm-hmm. that right? And mm-hmm. it is doing this really fascinating thing, which I'm probably going to butcher when I describe, and you can correct me, but instead of using large... Uh, 
very heavy mirrors. It is using what I've heard described as glitter, which is kind of throwing a bunch of reflective material into space, forming it into a reflective surface, and then gathering all that information. But it comes in because it's not a flat surface. It comes in with all sorts of different reflections at different angles, and then is processed by a very powerful computer after the fact. Did I get that right? It's it's 80% accurate. (laughs) 83% accurate. But it means that there's... It's it's kind of this it's upending this notion of instead of going to look for this one specific thing, it's let's just gather everything and then sort it and parse it after the fact. Well, the, when you're in survey mode, that's what you do. And survey mo- mode is a kind of a serendipity mode. If you only used the telescope to answer questions you posed in advance, maybe it's ready to answer questions you have yet to think of. How do you put it in that mode? You point the telescope at a random part of the sky and just scan the sky. And then the data sits there on the computer until someone with initiative says, I'm going to look at these regions of the sky that no one cared about that were just sort of drift scans on the telescopic mount. But all those things you mentioned earlier about more powerful telescopes and more powerful computing will let us sort of point and get more information coming back At any place you point, you'll get more information. That's correct. So in your role as a public figure, how do you – this is something we think about at 538 a fair amount. You know, how do you – What does 538 mean? 530 is the number of, of votes in the Electoral College. Oh. And that's when Nate started doing political oh, polling yeah, and yeah, that's yeah. kind of what okay, his name was. Sure. And now it's just a number. Mm-hmm. And you have to write it out. You can't if – you, if you do it in 538, I think it's because we don't own 538.com. So we're very insistent on writing it out. So but, you hope they don't redo the districts and then you have more – yeah, the Electoral College, I don't think, unfortunately, is not going to go anywhere, <laughs> anywhere <laughs> anytime soon. Um, but when you're talking to a general audience about your work, how do you balance complex numbers and complex data and complex ideas and, and sort of make it translate for a general audience? The secret is I don't balance it. I just pick what I think they'll be interested in, and that's what I talk about. And stuff that's not interesting or has a complexity level that would make the conversation boring, I just leave it out of the conversation. Because if you're in conversation with me, it's not a lesson plan. It's not, oh, I'll test you this later. It's not, did we hit all the syllabus items? It's, are you in a position to become curious about the universe? Am I in a position to serve that? And to the extent that that matches and marries, uh, yeah, I, I've pre-selected what I think is really cool cosmic phenomena. But are there are there is there anything that got left on the cutting room floor, so to speak? I mean, it happens all the time here. Oh, we'd love to write about this, but we would have to get really into the weeds in order to explain it. Yeah, the cutting room floor. Hmm. Yeah, I. They're just topics that are just. It's not so much that they're difficult, although they may be in some cases. It's that they're just not. It they're just boring. I mean, you'd have to be a full-up astrophysicist to get excited about it. And so I pre-choose. There's no reason to, to, to labor you with that knowledge when, at the end of the day, all that's going to matter is your curiosity. One of the other things we deal with as data journalists here at 538 is the kind of tension between 
finding patterns in big data sets versus talking about the outliers, which might tell a sort of different story. Are there? Do you get more excited by finding patterns or the one weird thing that kind of doesn't make sense? I'm, I'm pretty even, Stephen, on this. If there's an outlier, it, it's more likely that someone messed up <laughs> in their data taking than that it's something actually astrophysically interesting. It, the person who messed up is probably that, what was his name, the chief data <laughs> guru or whatever oh, yeah, their the, name was? <laughs> uh, uh, manager of the digital universe. Yeah. So if you have outliers, they're interesting because you always do a double take on them. And then you, you approach them with, skepti- with skepticism. Because if you've got something going with the rest of the data, you don't want to mess up your nice idea with an, un, with an inconvenient point. And so you go at it skeptically, and then you say, well, if this is real, someone else should be able to measure the same thing. If nobody else can duplicate the measurement, it is an outlier. It, sorry, it is a, an ignorable outlier. If other people start doing it and start getting similar results, then it's a fundamental part. And then it's a pattern. Of and the then truth. you explore it. Yeah, yeah. What's the best fight happening in astronomy right now? Best fight? Yeah. We don't fight all that much. Oh, but, we, you know, we, nerd no, fight. Nerd fight. Uh, I'll tell you why we don't fight. Because we we agree tacitly that if you have an idea and I have an idea, and those ideas are not the same idea, we're trying to account for the same phenomenon, either I'm right and you're wrong, you're right and I'm wrong, or we're both wrong. <laughs> and we know this. We have a self-awareness of this. So there's there isn't this susceptibility of... You know, having an argument and the person who argues best wins. What does that mean? No. What what should win is what's true out there. And how do we determine what's true? Use the methods and tools of science. We're at ESPN, of course, so um, I have to ask you a couple questions about sports. Uh, you wrestled in high school and college. You rode, yeah, I was captain of my high school's team. And you rode... And I was undefeated. Undefeated I had, in high school. In high school, but not in college. Not in college. <laughs> Definitely not but in college. four years of college wrestling? Uh, four years of college wrestling, yeah. that's correct. Freshman, and sophomore, junior, senior. you danced a lot yeah. uh, back in the day? I've been on three performing dance companies. And I heard, did you really run a 425 mile? In, in high school as a senior. Before, uh, that's when I was a light 190 pounder. Uh, I was a heavy 190 pounder in college where you just lose weight rather right. than buff up. But... My strength to weight ratio, speed to, to strength ratio, was very high my senior year of high school. And I, I ran a four, around a four and a half minute mile. I, and the reason I know that is I was, it was just in training. It wasn't, I was not on the track team, but I always had a kick. I always had energy when other people didn't. I would say, surely there's some, because you know you have energy because when you finish the race, you didn't die. <laughs> right? Right. So you have energy. Use it. This is how this was my philosophy. <laughs> and I never died at the end. But in the training for wrestling, it included running and running up and down steps of stadia, running sort of middle distance. And so in a sort of two mile run, my second mile was four minutes and 30. Uh, four, I think it was 425. My father ran track, by the way. Uh, he had the fifth fastest time in the world at one point huh. for what was then a 600 yard run, something a long lost race. But he ran cross country in high school and college. I appreciate you using Stadia, by the way. That, I don't, didn't want to let that go by unnoticed. <laughs> um, but are people surprised when they hear that you were so into sports? I, I th- people, see, I'm not a small person, and so uh, we, we're so trained in our society 
if you see sort of a black person with some body size, oh, it must have been an athlete. Uh, there are people who don't remember that I do science, but they recognize me in some way. Said, Haven't I seen you on TV? Oh. I said, maybe. I don't know. Aren't you a sportscaster? So the, wow. the, the stereotype kicks in. So, so, so people, no, they're not surprised. But why is it hard for people? I'm assuming it's – I think it's hard for people to – have it in their head that someone can be really nerdy and a really good athlete at the same time. There was a day when that was the case, but now they, I think they delight in the fact that that exists. It's not hard. They, I think they delight. They, they like knowing that there's something else you might do well. And, uh, and I'm, I'm honored by that curiosity, but it's just not... Uh, there's one video of me dancing that was smuggled out of the Christmas party in you my department. You know I'm going to go Google that right now. <laughs> and it's filmed vertically. And I and there's oh, some the worst. 20 I'm, things where people uh, back out into a circle. Oh, no. And, and like, so I'm alone in this circle and people are clapping. And I don't even remember the song. But uh, their urge is to get me to continue to do it. So they hear that I was in a dance company. Oh, you'd be a shoo-in for Dances with the Stars, all right? You get the stars. Yeah, I get it. Okay, stars. But I have no interest in, I mean, when I was dancing and wrestling, I was not doing science research. I wasn't writing books. No one was interested in interviewing me for about anything. That was a different chapter of my life. But you were in school and you were studying these yes. things. I'm just curious how you balanced those two. No, they were never balanced. When I was wrestling, I said I should be studying. When I was studying, I said, you know, I want to get back on the mat. So th there, is the, there is the psychological discomfort knowing you should be doing something else. And we presume that balance is a good thing. The very fact you ask the question that way implies that we should seek balance in our lives. There are whole philosophies on that, and so I'm, I'm not here to debate that. But what I can tell you is that when something is out of balance— you can get quite innovative in your attempts to resolve that fact. And in my life, I have resolved imbalance by creating other imbalances that brought me to new talents, to new investigations. And so life is always about how you are juggling and balancing things, but provided you're still getting stuff done, that's quite a fun ride. You, know, you don't go to the amusement park roller coaster and say, I want to be balanced. No, you want to be as unbalanced as you possibly can because that's the thrill ride. And that's actually precisely what I was going for. I mean, in my, in my life, I didn't get my act together as a student until I started taking sports really seriously. That's code it, for flunking out. <laughs> no. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> right. No, but it meant that actually by shrinking the amount of time that I had to focus on my studies, it added pressure and imbalance and, and made me really and get we, my act and, together and if with you, these if, two, two sides of my life. If it doesn't kill you, the pressure, I think, can serve some value in your motivation. Uh, so in, in college, I had a losing record in wrestling until my senior year, but I loved it so much. I didn't wrestle. Yes, I was undefeated and captain, and one could argue, oh, so that's why you liked it. No, I liked it because I liked it. And it didn't matter whether I won, even though I happened to win in high school. In college, I still liked it, and I lost until my senior year. I think I was, that was like the first time I had a winning record. But the sport was just magical to me. If you lose, you lost. There's no blame in anybody else. That your opponent was faster, quicker, whatever it is, and they're exactly your weight, like within six ounces or whatever, eight ounces. So you got no excuse in that in that round. So that that made it. Um, I'm, I'm reminded of John Kennedy's 
famous comment about the moon. We choose to do these things. We choose to go to the moon, not because it's easy, but because it's hard. And I think not enough people embrace the hard in life. All right, Neil deGrasse Tyson, thank you for joining well, us. Well, thanks for having me. Thank you. Again, Star Talk airs Mondays at 11 p.m. on the National Geographic Channel. I also recommend the Star Talk podcast, still one of the best out there. And that's it for this podcast. What's the Point's editor is Chadwick Matlin. Our video producer is Ryan Nantel. 538's podcast and video intern is Asta Chadravedi. My name is Jody Avergan. You can reach me by email. Find my address at 538.com slash podcasts. Remember, you have to spell 538 out. I'm on Twitter at Jody Avergan. Our music is by Rishikesh Hirway, who also hosts the excellent Song Exploder podcast. If you like What's the Point, subscribe using your favorite podcast client and throw us a rating and a review. It really does help others discover the show. Thanks for listening. See you soon.